to Oncology for the Inquisitive Mind. And last time we left you, our lovely audience, on a bit of a cliffhanger. We uh, talked all about early renal cell cancer and we'd given all of these all of these hints and uh, teasers towards a, a metastatic episode that will be coming soon. Well, it's no longer coming soon. It's right here, right now. And I'm joined, as always, by my co-conspirator and partner in crime, Josh Hurwitz. And Josh, I guess... Last time, there was a lot of equivocating. There was a lot of, you know, there's there's some evidence. The evidence is incomplete. The evidence is contradictory about use of systemic therapy in the adjuvant setting for renal cell cancer uh, for patients who have had a uh, kidney cancer cut out or even a metastatic deposit or three cut out. And they um, there wasn't really a concrete degree of evidence for um, the use of adjuvant either sudnitinib or pembrolizumab. But here, there's not going to be any equivocations whatsoever, because once you have metastatic renal cell cancer, the evidence is quite clear. I enjoyed that segue, Michael, when you said clear, but we're not actually talking about the clear trial this week. Oh, rats, my pun has been for <laughs> It is what I will briefly mention it, but Mikey... As always, you do a wonderful introduction, and I am going to talk briefly about metastatic clear cell, which is that variant, that predominant variant we spoke about last week, renal cell carcinoma, and a little bit about how we stratify these according to risk. But before we do this, I have a little bit of a segue, and it's not from a sponsor. Oh dear, what is this segue, Josh? This is this is catching me off guard as well. Thank you. I, I wrote all this up beforehand. So, Michael, before we launch into metastatic RCC, I would love the opportunity to talk about an opera I saw recently oh. titled The Hours. Josh has <laughs> taken, taken my high culture poetry also from last week and he is turning it on its head. He's putting his own spin on it. Literally, um, my wife said something similar, so that was quite cute. Um, and we, we saw this on the weekend through Metropolitan Opera Live in HD. It's based in the States, but they stream to multiple countries, and it's actually an incredible experience, and I would highly recommend any of our listeners uh, if they're interested. What you are probably asking yourself is, what on earth does this have to do with renal cell carcinoma or oncology or cancer or patient care? And I assure you, our devoted and lovely listeners, that there are, there are incredible parallels with the patients and the families that we treat and the studies we are going to discuss today. I can't wait to see these, these parallels, Josh. Thank you, Michael. So the story of this opera focuses on three different women separated by space and time, each followed for a single day in their lives and interconnected by a book written by the novelist Virginia Woolf titled Mrs. Dalloway. All three women, while incredible, struggled with circumstances beyond their control, whether it be a novel that they were struggling to create, a friend dying of AIDS prior to antiretroviral drugs, or someone born in the mid-1950s and not given the same opportunities as a man. As I sat in this movie theatre watching this breathtaking performance of Renee Fleming, Kelly O'Hara and Joyce Didonata, my mind wandered to the patients I had treated during the week. We always look at our studies in this, in this show 
in our journal clubs, with our consultants, with our colleagues. So analytically, and as I read up on the objective response rate of the study I'll present today, I mused, like the women in the hours, many of our patients suffer from circumstances beyond their control, an uncertain future, potentially limited or no support. These circumstances will repeat themselves time and over again over the course of our career, with probably only one significant potential change, having better drugs and better treatment. While the psychosocial model of healthcare is so prevalent in our practice, I hope that future versions of ourselves can reassure our patients that treatments we have can be long-lasting and efficacious like limited toxicities. My goal for what we want out of oncology is to be something like HIV, where while we might not be able to cure the patient, they can live a long and independent and healthy life with minimal side effects. As a sidebar, I would highly recommend seeing this modern opera or seeing the movie from 2002 or reading the book. Um, It was quite breathtaking and very special. Mikey, thank you for humoring me. That was my little spiel. Um, I have a little bit on renal cell carcinoma, but did you have any questions? Also also some bits on renal cell cancer or or whatever. I mean, uh, we're morphing into a a cultural podcast (laughs) and... Abandoning or con- very, at the very least confusing most of our listeners at this point. But seriously, MetLive Opera, you can also download the app. We are not sponsored by them. Um, but they are sponsored by Bloomberg. <laughs> well, I'll delete that. Okay, let, let's talk about renal cell carcinoma and the clear cell variant. Um, thank you for giving me the limelight for a minute. What we know with RCC is it is, it is susceptible to both immunotherapy and anti-angiogenic treatment approaches. As we discussed last week, chemotherapy sucks because of poor response rates. When I say sucks, look, it does something, but it's nowhere near what we need for efficacious treatment options. Previously, early agents such as sinitinib that targeted the VEGF receptor, so that's vascular endothelial growth factor receptor, were standard of care in the first line for this advanced disease. But things have moved forward and moved forward significantly in the last five years. Now there are multiple options available, making this somewhat a crowded landscape, which is amazing. You always love a crowded landscape for good options for treatment of cancer, but there's not a clear winner. Concurrently, overall survival rates have plateaued in this cancer subtype. The median overall survival for metastatic RCC is approaching five years. While not where breast cancer is, it's still far better than what it was predating these treatments. Now, the first wave was targeted therapy, so TKIs. The second wave has been immunotherapies. And now the third wave is a combination of these two modalities. Most of the treatments at present actually look at the microenvironment around the cells. Now, microenvironment, there's a lot of research going into this because cancers like pancreatic cancer have a pretty terrible microenvironment where immunotherapy doesn't really work, targeted therapy doesn't really work apart from RACA variants and other sort of subtypes. With this, we know that there's a huge response. Now, when I say the field is overcrowded, there are multiple trials. So there's the Checkmate 214. There's the Checkmate 9ER. There's the Keynote 426. Mikey, that's the one I'm talking about. There's also the CLEAR trial. And we can't forget Cosmic 313. You know, the better the name, the better the trial. That's definitely a correlation. 
trials are only as good as their titles are awesome. Or what Josh says. No, no, don't don't do that. Okay, but before we talk about trials, let's talk about risk stratification and what it means. Mikey, I don't know about you, but I don't often do risk stratification. Maybe it's because I'm an advanced trainee or a fellow. Um but it's kind of you just kind of given this patient and you're you're gonna treat them appropriately. Do you do a lot of sit down, look at the risk stratification of these patients when they're metastatic? I think when you have a patient who is metastatic, either as a relapse or a de novo metastatic, and you'll go into the details very soon, I'm sure, Josh. The risk is almost automatically intermediate or poor because they're metastatic. I think one of the criteria of the of the risk stratification score is time to advanced disease or timed to first meta- time to first metastasis. Um, and so you automatically get points for being advanced. And so there is, it is very, very difficult for someone to have a favorable risk advanced cancer. The majority of patients, as Mikey so kindly mentioned with clear cell carcinoma at first line treatment are classified as intermediate risk. As he said, metastatic almost puts you in that category. The when you have, want to have a look and kind of risk stratify for yourself, MD Calc is a very easy free tool. But they look at a number of things. First of all, being the time from initial diagnosis to systemic therapy. We know with most cancers that if there's a shorter duration from you know, let's say curative treatment to metastatic spread, they're going to have a pretty poor prognosis because. There's, there's something in the biology that we're not appropriately managing or we don't know or can't. The other things are the performance scores, you know, poorer the performance, obviously worse the outcome. Hemoglobin, if it's less than the low limit of normal, about 120. Corrected calcium, if it's higher than the upper limit of normal, usually for us it's about 2. Point, I think it's 5.5 or 2.6, depending which lab you use. Um their neutrophil count as well, higher than the upper limit of normal, and in the platelet count, if it's higher than the upper limit of normal. Patients with these negative factors have a potentially, so I guess if you are lacking these negative factors, you have a good prognosis and you might reach a longer survival. When you've got one to two of these factors, you have an intermediate risk of death with a median overall survival of 23 months. And if you have three or more factors, you have an expected poor risk outcome with a median survival of about eight months. Eight months is terrible. Eight months of any cancer is terrible. But now we're going to talk about some trials. And thank you so much for that uh, very enthusiastic, shall we say, very enthusiastic opening. I love to be enthusiastic. But I think we, we spoke a lot about the, the biology and the subtypes last week. And I think, you know, if you did want to learn a little bit more about the background of RCC, check out that episode. It was incredible as are all of our episodes and as a result you should watch all of them maybe not all of them you can't watch a podcast (laughs) anyway um so look checkmate 214 is the study i'm going to be talking about one of the many studies that josh rattled off like a someone who rattles off things um checkmate 214 is a study of immunotherapy in intermediate to poor risk renal cell cancer. As Josh said, um, immunotherapy is effective in 
uh, renal cell cancer. Prior to the, the publication of Checkmate 214, nivolumab alone was demonstrated to have an overall survival benefit. And ipilimumab, a CTLA-4 um, antagonist, um, as a monotherapy, um, had a response rate of about 13%, but also carried a high rate of toxicities and side effects. We've talked about them previously in our melanoma episode, so you should listen to that one as well. Prior to the publication of this study, though, sunitinib, that old faithful, was the standard of care for first-line treatment of advanced clear-cell renal cell cancer. And as far as treatments go, it was pretty good. Um, there's no denying that. So the median progression-free survival uh, based on uh, the phase three, st- phase 3 data of sunitinib was 9.5 months. The overall survival was 29 months, and the response rate was 25%. So you're having people on average, live more than two years with sunitinib. So surely, ipinevo can't be any better than that. Well, listen on, dear audience, and you will find out. So, Checkmate 214 was a randomized phase three open-label trial, and after having a uh, double-blinded trial last week, Josh, we're right back to open-label trials because sunitinib is given orally. It's given as a tablet, and you can't exactly blind... Uh, a study when one arm is getting a tablet and the other arm is getting infusion of two drugs. You could, but it'd be very, very messy. Um, So the two arms were, control arm obviously got sunitinib once a day. The ipinevo arm was given uh, initially ipinevo, then followed by nivolumab maintenance. And the dosing here is important because the uh, previous data of combination of ipinevo before this was in melanoma. And the dosing of that was ipilimumab given at one milligram per kilogram, uh, three milligrams per kilogram, sorry, and nivolumab given at one milligram per kilogram. But with this, they actually swapped it around. So nivolumab was given at three milligrams, ipi was given at one milligram per kilogram. And so you'll frequently hear people say, I'm giving ipinevo at the melanoma dose, or I'm giving ipinevo at the renal cell dose. Um, And that's what that means. So the dose of ipilimumab in renal cell is lower, and the thought is that that potentially reduces toxicity. Patients were randomized one-to-one, and they were stratified by the IMDC risk score, which is what Joshua was talking about before, as well as their geographic region. They had three co-primary endpoints for this study. Just count them. Uh, They had overall response rate, progression-free survival, and overall survival. Now, the uh, endpoints were actually met in 2017 when the um, the first um, study was first published, I believe, and the and, and so they did allow crossover after 2017. They did a, a uh, protocol amendment to allow that. So you do have people on sunitinib then getting ipinevo afterwards, which you know you've always got to keep in mind because it can theoretically blunt the survival benefit than if you didn't allow it and you just allowed the people who progressed on sunitinib to deteriorate and ultimately pass away. The secondary endpoint was the incidence rate of adverse events in uh, the incident. Sorry. The secondary endpoint was the one I'm going to talk about the most is the incidence of adverse events, but they also looked at the overall response rate, progression-free survival and overall survival in the intention to treat population because about a quarter of patients enrolled in this study actually had favourable risk 
metastatic RCC. And further to the point from earlier, really the only way you can get favorable risk metastatic RCC is to have a lot of uh, none of those high risk markers that Josh mentioned, but also to have a cancer that takes more than a year to recur. So you were diagnosed early, you had it resected or otherwise removed, and you were disease-free for more than a year. Because once you have disease recurrence in less than a year, which for patients who present de novo metastatic is that the time is zero, then um, you're automatically in that intermediate risk. So they did also have a look at patients with favorable disease. Yeah, Mikey, you're completely right with the, the the score or the risk stratification. If you get a single point, your intermediate risk, you cannot, if you have any of the risk factors, you bump up into that next crew. And as they say, the median survival with zero points is 43.2 months in the metastatic cohort. Yeah, and what you said before, Josh, is exactly right. We're patting each other on the back a lot here, but those markers tend to be a gross indicator of the tempo of the de- tempo of the disease the likelihood of recurrence the the risk of further progression and potentially resistance to systemic therapy so if you have a lot of those markers the low hemoglobin the high calcium um rapid recurrence from uh treatment of early disease um or even advanced disease where you've had a metastectomy uh, you are going to fall into this intermediate to poor risk category where the outcomes are significantly worse. In terms of demographics, so this was quite a large study, over a 1,000 people, 1,082 to be precise. In the intention to treat population, uh, there were about 530, 540 patients in both arms, the Ibinivo and the Sunitnib arm. In the smaller intermediate and poor risk group, which was what the study was really honing down on, there were there were still a significant number, 423 in the ipinivo group versus 416 in the control sunitinib group. So still good numbers. The median age was 62 years old. Uh, almost three quarters of the patients were male. And the majority had intermediate risk disease. Um, in the intention to treat arm, the breakdown is 23% had favourable risk, 61% had intermediate risk, and 17% had poor. Interestingly, and this isn't really something that is clinically relevant because we don't normally test for it, but the majority, 75%, were pdl one negative. So pdl one less than 1%. 80% had a previous nephrectomy. And the most common sites of metastatic disease were the lung in 69%, lymph nodes, bones, and liver, which very much sort of jives with clinical experience. Uh, We mentioned the cannonball mets in our last episode. That is a a very frequent manifestation that is visible even on simple x-rays. And retroperitoneal lymph node involvement and mediastinal lymph node involvement is also very common. Uh, Bone involvement and liver involvement tends to indicate a disease that is more advanced. In terms of the outcomes, so we're going to start by looking in the intermediate and poor risk group, and I don't want to sort of play my play my card or show my hand too early here, but the um, the uh, the results that follow are going to be from the intermediate and poor risk group, and this is not necessarily a new study; it is a few years old. So we do have five year survival data, and. The five-year survival rate across the two 
um, groups was 43% in the EP Nouveau group versus 31% in the Sunitnib group. So the um, Sunitnib treatment is still very good. And I think Josh, you mentioned that in our uh, previous episodes. The TKI treatment, even something as old, old as Sunitnib, is still very, very good. Um, but the um, EP Nevo is just better. The median overall survival was 47 months versus 26 months with a hazard ratio of 0.68. The overall response rate, likewise higher, 42 versus 27%. There was a complete response in in 9% in the immunotherapy versus 1%, small but better. Um, And the median duration of response was not reached with the Ipinevo group versus 19.7 months with Sinitinib. The progression-free survival, interestingly was not significantly better. You look at the survival curves and they pretty much uh, overlie one or another. Um, uh, Sorry, they pretty much overlie each other. And this is borne out by the numbers. So the hazard ratio, sure, it is 0.82. It took six to nine months before there was a separation. So you really have to not progress for six to nine months uh, before you're going to get a benefit from ipinevo over sinitinib, and it did not meet the pre-specified threshold for statistical significance with a p-value of 0.009. So you can say that there's an overall survival benefit, there's a, res- there's a higher likelihood of responding, but progression-free survival is not something that ipinevo does better than sinitinib. If we're drilling down into the subgroup analysis, Josh, throw out some subgroups that come to mind uh, that you think might have done better with Ipinevo compared to Sunitinib? What about good risk IM, uh, IMDC classification? Uh, we'll come to that. That's a whole topic in itself. Um, so PDL one did not appear to do significantly different. Okay. My next one, male versus female. Which one's better? Male. Ah, uh, swing and a miss. <laughs> so um, <laughs> women even though they comprise obviously a smaller percentage of patients, they did appear to do better than their male counterparts with a hazard ratio of 0.52. What Um, about a younger age? Younger age did do better. So patients that were less than 65 years old had a a hazard ratio of 0.53. Lung metastases. Uh, Lung mets. Interestingly, actually lung mets, I think were pretty much equivalent. Okay. Um, What about bone mets? I don't think they had bone mets. Liver mats. <laughs> You're just listing things now. Um, that, that's fair. That I look. I did ask you to do that. Um, so, if patients didn't have lung mats, interestingly, they seem to do as good with sunitinib, or or slightly less well with ipinevo. I should say, say than sunitinib. Um, they had a hazard ratio of zero point eight one. So you compare that to the point five threes and point five twos. So the Magnitude of benefit is less. So the magnitude of benefit is less um, if you have a low volume of disease, I guess, which stands to reason. Again, sunitinib is not a bad treatment. In that case, does that mean poor... Sorry, Michael, I'm interrupting you again. Poor IMDC should have done better than intermediate and favorable? So you're absolutely right, Josh, as usual. Um, The uh, intermediate uh, IMDC prognostic risk... Uh, had a hazard ratio of 0.66. The poor group had a hazard ratio of 0.57. So, again, if you need... (laughs) Josh is doing another victory dance. It seems like he does one of these every week. Um, If you need a greater response, 
then you will do better with ipinevo compared to sunilinib, which I guess stands to reason. Now, Josh, you mentioned before, let's talk about the favorable risk patients because that is a completely different kettle of fish. And this is what has really informed our uh, clinical practice to this point. So there were 249 patients in the study that had favorable risk disease. In summary, sunitinib did better or as good as ipinevo compared to... (laughs) Sunitinib did as good or better compared to ipinevo. The 12-month overall survival rate was 94% with ipinevo compared to 96% with sunitinib. At 18 months, the survival rate was 88% versus 93%. The overall response rate was 29% versus 52%. And the median progression-free survival was 15.3 months versus 25.1 months. However, there was a higher complete response rate in the ipinevo group at 11% versus 6%. So that is demonstrably not as good on the ipinevo side compared to sunitinib. I actually knew about the PFS versus OS difference, but it's not just PFS, right? It's response rate as well. There's a number of markers which show sunitinib is no slouch in this fight against the immunotherapy kings and queens. Absolutely. And this is really the reason that when you have favorable risk disease, you do not use dual agent immunotherapy. You go with a TKI, which in Australia uh, means sunitinib based on our restrictions. In other countries, obviously, there are plenty of other contenders. You've got pazopinib, cabazantinib, exitinib. And to my understanding, they're all pretty much equivalent. But in favorable risk disease, you reach reach for the TKI first. Um, What you can do, though, is, and I'll talk about this in my trial, and I've I've got a patient that's done this, where you can actually self-fund nivolumab. And you can get cabazantinib on the PBS for metastatic RCC if it's clear cell. So that's one way of circumventing the PBS restrictions in Australia. But that is obviously incredibly expensive, self-funding immunotherapy. Uh, yes, it is. I'm just, just saying that it's, it's an option. It, it, is, it is definitely an option. And it's not something that you should withhold uh, on an assumption from your patients. That's it. Anyway, sorry, continue. So, yes. So in summary... Ipinevo good for intermediate and poor risk disease. Ipinevo bad for favorable risk disease. And if you think about it conceptually, it makes perfect sense. Now we come to safety. And this is another area where Ipinevo really does trounce the TKIs. We've mentioned that TKIs are quite dirty drugs. They do have quite significant side effects. And this was borne out in the study here. So the most common uh, side effects with the uh, immunotherapy arm were fatigue, pruritus, diarrhea, which is heavily associated with ipilimumab, rash and nausea. The most common grade three or four side effects were LFT derangement and diarrhea again. However, in the TKI group, the most common side effects were diarrhea at 52%, fatigue at 49%, stomatitis, hypertension, and hand-foot syndrome. And generally, a lot of these affected between 20 and 40%. You compare that to the same side effects in the ipinevo group, and it's single digits. It's like 4%. So ipinevo 
despite being the harder treatment, in many ways is the better tolerated treatment. But obviously, for those favourable risk patients, there's potential suggestion that sunitinib is not just equivalent, it might actually be better, which is why we reach for it. There was also a uh, quality of life questionnaire, which to cut a long story short, was consistently better for Ibinevo, which again is almost certainly linked to the incidence of side effects. They had a small amount of data on subsequent therapy. So in the Ibinevo group, most patients had sunitinib or pazotinib, uh, pazopinib, I should say. Um, in the sunitinib group, most patients got nivolumab or exitinib. So to summarize this, um, Ibinevo is demonstrably better in patients with intermediate to poor risk uh, metastatic clear cell renal cell cancer. Um, However, there is no benefit and potentially outcomes are slightly inferior in patients with favorable risk disease. And there is also no PFS benefit in any group. There is a favorable toxicity profile of the dual immunotherapy blockade compared to TKI. Um, And as a result of this, if you have a patient who is intermediate or poor risk, which as we've mentioned, is the vast majority of cases that we see in our clinics, Ipinevo is almost certainly what you are going to reach for. However, it is worth emphasizing that TKIs are still an effective treatment for RCC. But I guess, and Josh, this is me giving you a little layup for your study, there is... There is a subset of patients who present with such high burden of disease that you cannot afford to wait the month or two for immunotherapy to start working. So what do you do if a response is required quickly? And as a follow-on, you've got these two great treatments that appear to uh, address different subsets of the population of renal cell cancer. Is there any benefit, dear Josh, in mushing them together and giving them at the same time? Is there any benefit in combining a tyrosine kinase inhibitor and a agent of immunotherapy? Michael, thank you for that. Yes, there is. And that's it. We're done. (laughs) See you next week. (laughs) No, no. So thank you for bringing that up. I think there's a couple of interesting points you raised and I will talk about them, but the study I'll be discussing today is Checkmate 426, which is a combination of exitinib plus pembrolizumab or Keytruda. Um, and this was a open label study, again, very similar to Michael's as well. And it was a phase three trial and they'll randomize according to IMDC risk group stratification, so poor, intermediate, good. And Pembro was given up to two years, 35 cycles. I always forget what 35 cycles is in years. It's two years. And Axidinib was given at 5 milligrams and increased to 7 and then 10 um, twice daily, depending on toxicities. Remember, the TKIs in this cohort can still be pretty, pretty rough. Um, and then, of course, you've got the comparator arm, which is sinitinib. So the old Hail Mary, the standard of care, which is no slouch. And that was given at 50 milligrams a day and could be adjusted depending on patient's response. The primary endpoint, they were dual primary endpoints. So these guys were pretty pretty keen, I think, pretty, um, what's the word I'm looking for, Michael? Um, pretty sure of themselves uh, with the primary Confident. Endpoint. Confident. Thank you, Michael. 
pretty keen, sure of themselves, confident. There we go. Uh, a primary, uh, so primary endpoints, overall survival and progression-free survival. Secondary endpoints, there were multiple, but objective response rate and safety. There were 1,062 patients from 129 countries. Very similar demographics to Michael, with intermediate risk being about 55% approximately in both cohorts. Predominantly, patients were under the age of 65, and most of them were male, so 70% male in both arms. Other things to talk about, similar kind of metastatic sites of lung, lymph nodes, and bones, with some having the adrenal glands and liver. Median duration of treatment was 10.4 months in the pembroaxitinib group and 7.8 months in the sinitinib group. But let's talk about efficacy. So I've got a couple of things because there's been update after update. This was a 2019 publication I'm talking about. Patients alive at 12 months was 89.9% in the PA arm, so that's Pembro and Axitinib arm, versus 78.3% in the Sinitinib arm. At the 18 months, that's still a 10% difference of 82.3% versus 72.1% in the standard of care arm. Median survival was not reached in either group, and the risk of death was 47% lower in the Pembro-Axitinib arm than the Sinitinib arm with a hazard ratio of 0.53, and it was statistically significant. The median progression-free survival was 15.1 versus 11.1 in standard of care, and that was statistically significant with a hazard ratio for death or disease progression of 0.69. So there was benefit already seen in overall survival and PFS survival in all subgroups including all IMDC risk and PDL one expression categories. That's pretty definitive. Yeah, it's a good study. But there are things to talk about. So I've got the Kappa Mai curve. I have the forest plot as well. Um, and, you know, overall, just everything really looks better. But this is what I wanted to talk about, Michael. And this is something I think is worthwhile highlighting is objective response rates. So objective response rate in the excitinib and the pembrolizumab arm was 60% or 59.3 versus 35%. So that's a whopping 25%, give or take, better, more patients are going to respond to this combination therapy versus single arm therapy. And you compare that to the ipinevo arm, I know you shouldn't do cross-trial comparisons, but in the ipinevo study the response rate was 42%. So that is still a miles better than dual immunotherapy blockade, the combination. That's it. And so complete response in 5.8% of the pembroxitinib, partial response in 53% of the pembroxitinib, and stable disease in 24.5%. So if you want to say patients who have stable or better disease, 53, 78, so over 80% will have stable disease on this combination. Which is astounding. Astounding. And progressive disease, 10%, you know, there's still that unlucky cohort. Um, And median, so going to your question, Michael, which was what's the time to response? So the combination was 2.8 months. So it's actually relatively similar to immunotherapy alone, which is usually, what, the two- to three-month mark? It usually is a two- to three-month mark, but... um... That is interesting because I always thought, and I've heard uh, lots of emeritus professors speak about this predominantly from the States because that's where this um, combination is very popular. And those are the patients they use it in, the patients who have an, a, an impending visceral crisis. So that is interesting. 
I guess you probably, yeah, I, I don't really know, but there's other trials that we can talk about at another time. What I did find interesting was the toxicity profiles, Michael, and it seems that the combination arm can be toxic. So about grade three or higher toxicities were found in 75% of patients in the intervention arm and 70% in the sinitinib arm, which is high. Very high. So when talking about it, primary adverse events that you saw of any grade were hypertension, fatigue, hypothyroidism, decreased appetite, power planter syndrome, let's be honest. Handfoot um, syndrome. Handfoot, <laughs> nausea, and then LFT derangements, dysphonia, cough, those sorts of things. What I found, though, is there was discontinuation in, in the intervention arm, 30% discontinuation in, sorry, in, um, of either drug was 30%. Discontinuation of both drugs was only 10%. Um, and interruption, about 70% had a dose, a time interruption during their treatment. In the sinitinib arm, as a comparison, discontinuation in 13% and dose interruption in 50%. So the summary really is a highly effective treatment, but that efficacy comes at a cost. They, I think that their discussion is that it's got a, sta a stable risk uh, side effect profile. I think it's slightly worse looking at the numbers. That would be my impression of this. You might have mentioned it, but was there data in terms of dose cessations and dose interruptions in the treatment group about what agent? Was it just always both? Because in practice, the rare occasions that I have seen this sort of thing, you sometimes drop the TKI, keep the immunotherapy going if you can, or you drop them both and reinstitute the reinstate the immunotherapy first. Was there any data on like that sort of slightly finessed methodology, or was it just you drop one, you drop both? Well, you drop. Look, they said either drug, so that was the wording they used. I don't have the sub analysis, so thirty percent would drop either if he. Uh, sorry, not if he. Um, Hembro Lizumab or the Exitinib. But I guess the question with this is like, you'd only have the Pembro for two years. You'd have the Exitinib potentially longer. I don't know which one it was. It'd be interesting to actually see. Probably the excitinib because it's the more toxic of the two, generally. Yeah, I, I would say that'd be fair. But I guess if you have biochemical alterations, LFT derangement, renal failure, that sort of thing, on the outside, it's probably going to be difficult to point the finger at one or the other um, because it theoretically could be both. Or it could Very be, true. It could be the immunotherapy, so it would probably behoove you to stop both and then see if it settles down automatically and if it does it's the the exitinib because the drug is being eliminated and if it doesn't it's the immunotherapy wonderful that's that's exactly right so i have an update though so i have the 42 uh, update. Month, yes the 42 month follow-up from 2021 what they found is that 44.7 percent of patients um so 418 patients had died overall in the trial 193 uh in the intervention arm and 225 in the standard of care arm. So evidently more people are dying on sinitinib versus the other drug. Now, compared to sinitinib, um, the overall survival was 45.7 months versus 40 months with a hazard ratio of 0 0.73 and a PFS of 15.7 versus 11.1 .1 months with a hazard ratio of 0 0.68. What they found is the 
objective response rate at that time was still 60% versus 40%, so 20% difference. Um, complete response was 10 versus 3%. Duration of response was 23 versus 15%. Oh, sorry, 23 months versus 15 months. Um, there is one other analysis I would like to talk about, unless you had a question, Michael. There's a lot of juice in this one. There was a sub-analysis looking at subsequent therapies after Keno 426. So once you progressed on your treatment, where did you go? So PFS2 is what we're looking for. So overall, 47% of the intervention arm and 65% of the standard of care arm received greater than one line of subsequent anti-cancer therapy. With this, in the Pembro and Excitinib arm, 80% received a VEGF or VEGF-R inhibitor as the first subsequent line of therapy, as did 43% in the Sinitinib arm. So interestingly, they didn't go on to a second immunotherapy agent, and that's still probably standard of practice, knowing when second immunotherapy is actually going to change anything. There's not a lot of data to support that. That's a very interesting sort of concept, a very interesting study. The question I had, Josh was you could have chosen any one of three studies. You could have chosen CLEAR. You could have chosen um, the Checkmate, um, the Cabo, um, Cabozantinib plus Nevo, whatever Checkmate that one was. And yet you chose this one. Was there a reason? I think there was. So I I could be wrong and I'm happy to be corrected, but my understanding is CLEAR does not have an overall survival um, data yet. Uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but I'm, I'm happy to hear that if you know you're you're right. So there's a longer duration of follow up. So the highest duration of follow up is the Checkmate two one four, followed by Keynote four two six, which we have talked about, followed by Checkmate nine er. Oh, sorry, apologies, no Clear, and then Checkmate nine er. So Clear update or last I think was about thirty three months, and the overall survival was not reached. Um, so we don't actually have. We don't know as of yet. Now, progression-free survival is definitely better in the lenvatinib arm. So, I mean, I, I think it's just sometimes worth our talking about. It. And I think reading through the literature, I found more people seem to use excitinib, potentially because it was the first combo that was released, not necessarily the best. But if you wanted to do a, you know, a dirty comparison, I actually have the dirty comparison here in front of me. So PFS, um, the... Keynote, so this is the trial we were talking about, had a PFS of 15.7 months, 15.7 months versus 23 months, right, with a hazard ratio of 0.42 in the clear um, update. Um, overall survival was pretty similar at the 12-month mark, but in the 24-month mark, it started to kind of differentiate benefiting clear, but also the standard of care arm as well. Objective response rate was about 10% more and complete response was 17 versus 10% favoring lenvatinib. But it's an interesting point of why did I not choose it? And I think I just found this particular trial and I was like, oh, I'd love to know what the overall survival data actually shows. Potentially it's going to wipe the floor of the excitinib one. I think you've chosen perfectly reasonably like we always or we frequently say on this show uh you know we don't have overall survival data so we don't know pfs is sometimes a good marker of things to come but it's not always there have been plenty of um uh, of studies that have had a good pfs benefit and no overall survival benefit 
So if you have data that is uh, better in terms of overall survival, that is established in terms of an overall survival benefit, um, then you really should go with that. Now, I guess the other thing is, and one thing I was curious about was was whether you had more clinical experience with axitinib. So if you were to put yourself in the shoes of a treating physician, then you might be more inclined to go with the devil that you know as opposed to the devil that you don't. Because for me, that would probably be um, cabozantinib, which I've seen probably used the most of those three uh, agents, lemvatinib, cabozantinib, and exitinib. Same as me. So I've used cabozantinib quite a bit um, in the renal cell carcinoma sphere. Um, and I think that's just the choice that my specialists have used. But I guess, you know, I think depending where you work, the reading I had was that exitinib was far more widely used in the States. Yeah. And, you know, your your mileage may vary. Your experience will vary based on, on where you are. So um, it will be interesting to see how these three studies stack up. And I guess it will be a case of one of them will probably become predominant based on clinical experience, but obviously they need to be out there to a far greater degree than they probably already are um, before a decision can be made. Exactly. And that's probably all we're going to talk about today. So um, thank you, Josh, for that whirlwind tour through renal cell cancer. Join us. Whoosh, indeed. Join us next time on Oncology for the Inquisitive Mind where we will be talking about... We'll be giving a GI update on a recent GI23 conference. Join us next time on Oncology for the Inquisitive Mind for a special GI update based on the recent GI23 conference, one of the first major conferences of the calendar year. Very, very exciting, lots of exciting stuff, and we look forward to seeing you in seven days' time. We'll see you then. See you then.